Today on the Cineos Health Podcast, we'll be talking about oncology MOAs, mechanisms of action. There are different ways that new oncology products work. I'm Jeff Stewart from Cineos Health Consulting, and I'll be joined by Jessica Lee, Managing Director at Cineos Health Consulting, who's an expert on oncology development and commercialization. If you like what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oncology MOA, today on the Cineos Health Podcast. I have you here as a person who's worked basically your entire career here at Cineos Health Consulting in oncology. Yes. For leading oncology companies. Mm-hmm. We won't name them, but if you think of companies that start with G or R, then that's a great deal of your work, if I'm understanding correctly. Correct. Last time I worked in an oncology lab was 1995, I think. And I hear things have changed in the last 24 and a half years. What's going on in oncology? Yeah, I think things have changed a lot in the last year, even. (laughs) I'm not going to go back 24 years ago. We probably don't have to go back that far. You're making me feel old. (laughs) But if we do go back a bit, right, oncology, I think if you start to think further back, it kind of traditionally had chemotherapies as what was being used not quite 25 years ago, but a while ago. And then the field has kind of evolved. So they've moved towards targeted therapies where they have specific biomarkers and products or MOAs targeting those biomarkers. And then in just the last maybe five, 10 years, 10 years for sure from a development perspective, but less than that from a commercialization perspective, it's focused and started to focus a bit more on immuno-oncology. So we still have our targeted therapies and we still use chemotherapies in certain therapeutic indications, but there has been a significant shift, particularly recently in immuno-oncology. So if I'm Rip Van Winkle and waking up after my 25 years, I still see a lot of the chemotherapies that I'm used to. Mm -hmm. I see the targeted therapies we all talked about, but I'm surprised to see that we've gone to another broad-based idea of immunotherapy. What's immunotherapy? Immunotherapy is essentially they're leveraging products to activate the individual's own immune system to fight against the cancer. Does it feel to you as a targeted therapy or is it another chemotherapy version 2.0? It's definitely not like a chemotherapy version 2.0, which was more kind of broad-based, broad-acting. Maybe it's something in between, because when you think of targeted therapy, you kind of think of a biomarker and then a very specific molecule that matches that biomarker. Like a lock and key. Kind of like a lock and key. But in immuno-oncology, it's a little bit more broad. You're activating the immune system, but you might be activating a few different things within the immune system or a few different pathways within the immune system, depending on which type of immuno-oncology product we're thinking about and talking about. And there, the immune system matters because the immune system itself is specific. So the lock and key, you're basically hiring a locksmith. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's a good way to think about it. Is that something that just in general has fewer side effects or works better? What is the advantage that we get over blasting something with uh, chemotherapy? And chemotherapy knocks holes in DNA, that kind of stuff, or stops all cells from dividing. Why is immunotherapy different? So it's leveraging your own immune system, so really activating your own immune system, which has its own sort of lock and keys to attack the tumors. And so there's this hope or promise that you actually are able to cure some cancers with the immunotherapy. That's very different. Cure? Really? That is the hope. That is the hope. Are we there yet for some cancers? We are seeing some really long tails, which are indicative of quote-unquote cures. I mean, I think of something as like melanoma 
as being curable pretty easily in most cases. You cut it off and it's gone. You catch it early and it's curable in that sense. And then others like some lymphomas, as I recall, that are really curable. You get a bone marrow transplant and you're cured. Is that different from what we hear for immunotherapies? Or do we think of immunotherapies as just delaying what is going to come later? Yeah, so I guess there's a few different ways to think about this. In oncology, there's early stage. And if you're able to catch it in early stage, like you said, with like melanoma, then cure is an option by cutting it out. And hopefully it hasn't spread to further parts of the body. Yeah, most of the time cure is the option for early stage melanoma. Exactly. But then there's late stage or metastatic. And that's where I think the immunotherapies have shown a lot of promise. So in these late stage patients where cure before was not an option, now there's the potential with these individuals that have a long tail. When we say tail, it's the tail of the survival curve. So we're seeing responses for much longer than we would have anticipated or saw with other products. We're not there because they haven't been that many years on the market. They even haven't been that many years in clinical trials, but you can see how things are going and they seem to be going well. Am I reading this correctly? That's what long tail means? Yes. So that's where we are. Immunotherapy is really the promise of today. What's the promise of tomorrow? What's coming up? What we see right now, if you look at the oncology pipeline, We see a lot of combination therapies, so combinations with immunotherapies, immunotherapies with other immunotherapies, immunotherapies with targeted therapies, immunotherapies on the top of backbone chemotherapy, for an example, lots and lots of combinations. We're also seeing a lot of, I would say, additional new immuno-oncology products. So when we're looking at kind of what's on the market today, we have an anti-CTLA-4, we have PD-1s, we have PDL-1s. Those are kind of the mainstay immuno-oncology assets. And then we have CAR-Ts, which I think most people would put under immuno-oncology assets as well. But when we look at the pipeline, there are a number of different immuno-oncology MOAs that are being targeted, like OX40, LAG3, TIGIT. There's so many of them. And what we're seeing is we're seeing combinations with existing immuno-oncology assets and these novel ones and all sorts of different permutations. That's fantastic for the patient. Assume that they're going to do better. I mean, that's the whole point is that they're going to have higher efficacy, possibly even that longer tail or higher cure rate. But one plus one equals two and one equals $100,000 for one therapy and two equals another $100,000 or more for the second therapy. Mm -hmm. Does that mean we're doubling the costs of oncology like overnight? I think that's a hot topic in in oncology right now. Certainly the cost of, to your point, one novel product added on top, at some point the healthcare system probably can't handle that. What we are seeing are manufacturers thinking a bit more interestingly, I would say, on how do we price them? Can we do like some sort of combination pricing so that it's not exactly one plus one? Or like we've seen in the past with some oncology manufacturers, they've taken into account the price of the first product, knowing that it's going to be a combination product. They've priced that second product at a slightly lower price than the first. So it's not exactly one plus one equals two. With some of the more, I would say, innovative products in development, which we didn't mention earlier since we were just talking about combinations, but there are other products that are also in the pipeline that are really innovative and may actually require a bit more consideration when thinking about pricing as those ones, if we look at like the pricing of the CAR-Ts, those are hundreds of thousands of dollars. 
to your point, the healthcare system probably can't afford to continue to add on hundreds of thousands of dollars plus another hundred thousand dollar product on top of that when you're doing combinations. That's true. You know where I've seen the answer has been for the payer side is that they look at oncology like number one spend category and diabetes right up there. Those ones are big spend categories for, say, a Medicare payer. They can't hit oncology. So their answer is hit everybody else. Yes, the system can't take it, but the system also can't say no. We have started to see in oncology a bit more competition from the payer perspective. So in therapeutic areas where there are multiple products that have similar efficacy and payers feel like they can replace one with the other, we have seen contracting taking place across a number of different oncology therapeutic areas, actually. They do go to other areas, but they are even starting to do that within oncology itself. And so what are the areas of oncology where the payer sees that I have options, therefore I have control? I think one classic one that I've heard for the last seven years, I would say, was renal cell carcinoma, kidney cancer. They had different options, and so they could pick winners and losers and who's to stop them. Yeah, and they can contract. So we've certainly seen it in prostate as well as breast cancer. So HR positive breast cancer. HR. Hormone receptor positive. So the estrogen receptor reacting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, So those ones. But not in HER2 or triple negative. HER2, there's limited options. Yeah. And triple negative, there's even more limited options. Does this idea of competition in some of these areas change how you would view your targets as you're coming in? You have a new product in development. You could take it to lots of different tumor types. I think the answer always was go for the big five and that was it. Breast non-swall cell, et cetera, prostate, colorectal, head and uh, neck. Head and neck, yeah. yeah. Is that now off the table and you try to go where they ain't, I guess? It was that hit, <laughs> hit it where they ain't? You know, actually, that's a great question. And we've had a lot of discussions with clients over the last year or so on this topic because everyone's trying to figure out what is the right way to enter into oncology. And when we have these different innovative therapies that can go for the broader, bigger tumor types that may take longer or there's more competition, do they choose to do that or... Do you go into something that maybe is a higher unmet need, more of an orphan categorization that may give them a bit of a leg up? But then as you think about pricing, there are considerations. And then do you expand? Can you expand? We've actually thought about this sort of how do you enter different indications in oncology? And it really does come down to a few different decision points that the manufacturer or the developer needs to consider, one of which is, to your point, Do we want to go into one of these areas where it may or may not be viewed as a more competitive and then potentially even payer management risk indication? And I think it depends on what type of molecule you have. So if you have a molecule that is really innovative and you think it's going to change the standard of care, your risk is lowered going into even the bigger indications because you can come in and if you're going to be differentiated in oncology, they're not going to put you in with that bucket of we think there are other ones that we can swap you out with. However, if you're kind of a replacement or you're a reformulation or something like that, you may want to think about targeting something more of a smaller patient population, high unmet need. If you're able to kind of think that from a scientific or a clinical perspective, you may have some sort of efficacy or benefit there that others haven't been able to show in the past, because that'll give you the opportunity to gain traction in a smaller patient population that has high emit need, and then also will give you some pricing potential. Yeah, higher price, you get bigger uptake in a smaller pool. And one thing that you didn't mention, but I think almost has to be true, you can fill your clinical trials faster. That depends on the size of the patient population, but yes, <laughs> yes. Right. There is a lot of competition, a very significant amount of competition in clinical trials for some of those bigger tumors. 
I guess at the other end of the spectrum, I had a client with a very, very rare tumor type of about 200 patients. And I think that they had trouble filling nine patients (laughs) in their clinical trials at the time. (laughs) Don't quote me on that. I don't remember. But I remember it was a challenge to find them. But even these larger ones, even though they seem like a big opportunity, well, if everybody's chasing the same big opportunity, then you have to slice that up into little little pieces. Mm -hmm. Almost reminds me actually of how the NIH funding, National Institutes of Health funding, has gone way, way up. But the number of PhDs that are chasing that funding has gone up much, much faster. Yeah, So everybody's chasing the same dollar. Exactly. So these are the things that we've talked about. We've talked about where we've been. We've talked about where we are today. And we've talked about what comes next. Anything else that you think that we should talk about and that if you're a new pharma company coming into oncology or you're just about to hit the market, you should know. We did talk about what comes next, but just at a high level, I think there's so much more that we could talk about from what comes next. Like other things that we haven't talked about, but are certainly in development and have the potential to change the landscape in oncology in the future are individualized treatments. CAR-Ts are individualized treatments. There are a lot of new products in clinical development that are individualized treatments that are beyond this CAR-T. Things that we're seeing are like cancer vaccines. So individualized cancer vaccines have the potential to change the future from a cancer care perspective. We're also seeing, instead of having individualized treatments, kind of thinking more broadly, but using those same sort of MOAs, so off-the-shelf CAR-Ts or allogeneic cells, which can be used kind of more broadly beyond an individualized patient. So they're not from you, but they're from somebody that might be a bone marrow transplant match or something like that? Am I Exactly. Okay. They'll have an HLA type match. Okay. And then you can use that, let's say, cell line across numerous patients. And so we're seeing kind of different ways of approaching oncology development or drug development in the future in these innovative new types of therapies. Jessica Lee, it's been fascinating talking to you. Thank you so much for teaching us more about what's happening in an oncology. Thanks for being on the Cineos Health Podcast. Thanks, Jeff. That's all for today's episode of the Cineos Health Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Stewart from Cineos Health Consulting. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on iTunes and Stitcher. If you have comments, suggestions, questions, or if you just want to talk through a particular challenge that you're having at your life sciences company, you may email me at podcast at Where consultants, that's what we do.